We'll try that again. Good evening. Uh, my name is Russ, uh, one of the curates here. Absolute joy to be with you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for all of those people who are watching uh, at home uh, or will be watching on YouTube later this week. I enjoyed watching last week's service. Um, I was actually away last week. I had a school reunion in my hometown of Portsmouth, a 10-year reunion, and um, some of you are getting that. Um, thanks, Joe. That was inappropriate. Um, and... Uh, uh, but I did watch the service. We, I was preaching at a church down there. I did watch the service, and I really did love the work of the Reverend Delboy Stillwell, who uh, came and said that this book is available for six pounds in the shops, but St. Dee's will sell it to you for ten. So there you go. But what can I say? We need the money. Um, the, the vicar has very expensive holidays. So, um, so please buy a book. I would recommend it. It's a fantastic book, both for this series and what we're doing together, but also uh, just for, for what God might be wanting to say to you. I'm going to recommend another book. I'm, I'm talking a bit, the, the part of the book that inspired me, part one, chapter four, I believe, where he talks about the practices. John Mark Comer talks about different practices that can help us in our fight against, the, against sin and the devil. And it's a really helpful book and, uh, and a really helpful bit of the book. So I'm going to talk a bit around some of those issues tonight. But another book which kind of, if once you've finished reading it, if, you're, if you love reading, then this is another really good book called The Common Rule uh, by Justin Early. Um, Early is a very interesting character. He's a hotshot lawyer in Washington, D.C., who ended up in hospital with the symptoms of a massive heart attack in his 30s and then discovered he didn't have a heart attack and there was nothing wrong with him. And he realized this was all anxiety and there must be something terribly wrong with his life if he was having these kind of symptoms and there was nothing actually going on. And so he's developed this idea of a common rule, which is all about different practices that we can use, rhythms and habits to help us as disciples to grow, to fight valiantly in a world where sometimes it's difficult to stand for Christ. So I recommend both of those uh, books. It's very strange. This series, uh, Fight Valiantly, comes from uh, the, uh, the, the prayer that we as a congregation would pray if someone was being baptized. It begins, Fight valiantly as a disciple. And tonight we're talking about what does it mean to fight valiantly as a disciple. I spent most of my life, um, certainly my childhood, growing up in the Salvation Army, which is a, a church which doesn't have baptism and doesn't have communion. So it's slightly strange that I'm talking to you on a series about the baptismal prayer. However, the fight valiantly bit I really get, because in the Salvation Army, we know how to fight. In fact, last week when I went back to my hometown, I was actually in the morning running the Great South Run, which happens along the seafront, along the seaside in South Sea in the city of Portsmouth. And it reminded me of one of my kind of most formative moments as a young Christian, something that happened in my local church. Uh, my local Salvation Army that I grew up in, they did fight valiantly, particularly at the end of the 19th century. Uh, largely, uh, our forefathers were a bunch of people who had come to faith, who hadn't grown up in Christian homes. Many of them had had child problems with, with, with alcohol addiction and other issues in their lives, and they had most miraculous conversions, and they come to faith, and they wanted to be valiant disciples sharing Jesus with everybody else. And so they would do anything to witness to anything that lived, moved, or breathed. And they learned to play brass instruments, and they put on Salvation Army uniforms, which if you don't know are kind of quasi-Victorian kind of military uniforms, and they marched up and down the road. We were still doing it when I was a kid. On Sunday morning, you have to march all the way down Albert Road in South Sea and stand on a street corner and pray and sing and play and give our testimonies, and please, God, no one from school's going to see me this week. <laughs> But in, in the history of my home church, it, it was quite spectacular. 
because actually lots of people didn't like the Salvation Army band turning up on their street at 9 a.m. on Sunday morning, and lots of people called the police. And eventually the police turned up one Sunday and arrested the whole Salvation Army band and put them in prison. And the Salvation Army was actually the organization in this country that actually established the public act of worship. So we have a right in this country to worship God anywhere we want, in private or in public. And it was the result of those soldiers fighting valiantly. The problem is with that kind of history, when you try to relive it, it doesn't always work. And so when I was a young boy, we had our 100th anniversary, our centenary of the Salvation Army Band, and we thought we should mark the valiant contribution of our forefathers. And so we planned this special march, and the band got all their uniforms polished and their, 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 their instruments polished, and the plan was on a, on a Saturday in the height of the holiday season to march all the way along the seafront and then into the town centre. And so everything was set. Now, of course, things can go wrong in England. The weather can be terrible, but actually it was a glorious sunny day. And we wanted, we wanted loads of tourists to see the band and follow them into the town centre and then be there as we once again boldly proclaimed the gospel and shared our witness. Well, we started marching along the seafront and I remember the South Sea Flora and Fauna Society had created a very clever Salvation Army logo with pot plants and cacti and we marched past that and we marched past Speaker's Corner which was where on the, on, on the seafront they would do these open air church services and probably one of the areas where they got into trouble with the police and then they started turning towards the town centre where they were going to stop in the middle of the town centre and once again we were going to share the gospel with the people of South Sea. Now, there was no one more proud to be there on this day than Norman. Norman couldn't play a brass instrument, so he wasn't in the band, but Norman carried the flag, so he was at the front. And so Norman had uh, got his flag polished and he had dry cleaned his uniform, and he was so proud to be leading this effort. Now, I have to tell you two things about this story. There's two bits of information you need to know to understand the next part of the story. First, you need to understand how Salvation Army uniforms work. They're very expensive. And so you have to be careful. If you go on holiday and you've put on too much weight, you can't really afford to buy a new uniform. So they have this clever elastic system where basically you can kind of basically button up and you can tighten it or loosen it with your girth. And, um, and you can, you, you know, so if you can put on weight, that's fine. And if you lose weight, that's fine. But when you dry clean the uniform, you unattach, you unattach this kind of elastic system in the, seat, in, the, um, in the waist of your trousers. The second thing you need to know is this, how a Salvation Army band stops. It's actually quite difficult to stop when you're marching. We did some marching this morning in church. It was great. And, and starting is easy, but stopping is difficult. And if you don't stop at the right time, you're going to go over the person in front of you. So what happens in a Salvation Army band is you're marching along and you hear two double taps. So you hear the drum go, boom, boom. Boom, boom, and that's your signal. You know it's left, right, left, right, left, right, and that's it. So here we are. We're marching into town. We're going to proclaim the gospel. We're going to share our witness again boldly with the people of South Sea. We've got people following us on their holidays. They've come from the seaside. They're now following the Salvation Army band. And we start to get to Palmerston Road, which is the shopping centre in South Sea. And there's suddenly a double tap on the drum. Boom, 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 boom. And the whole band, left, right, left, right, left, right. And Norman's trousers fall down. <laughs> Norman is holding about a 10-foot flagpole with a huge flag on it. There's not a great deal he can do about this situation at the moment. 
And so the trombone players behind him offer their instruments to the Lord and immediately go into a kind of rugby tackle position, pull up his trousers and cover his witness. (laughs) One of the challenges that we sometimes face when we want to pray, when we want to do something, when we want to kind of live our discipleship out in public, is that actually we don't get it quite right and we end up spiritually with our trousers down. And that's part of this story that Jesus tells. We're going to start with the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. We've got three stories tonight and they're all about practices which Jesus wants his disciples to fulfill if we're going to be valiant disciples, if we're going to fight valiantly as disciples. At this part, Luke 18, basically what's happening is we're coming towards the sort of end of Jesus' ministry. He's getting closer to Jerusalem, which is where he's obviously going to die and rise again. And what you see is that the pace is quickening. They're kind of marching a little bit quicker. And Jesus is kind of giving them a bit more parables, a bit more teaching, because he knows he's got to take this rabble of disciples and turn them into something, because he's not going to be here forever. And they've got to carry on fighting valiantly for him and his kingdom after he's gone. And so first we have this story of a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now the Pharisees, they're kind of like, for us, it's a difficult thing. The Pharisees are like a kind of panto kind of figure. We know, you know, when the Pharisees come into the story, boo, they're kind of like the biblical baddies. And that's really not fair. It's, it's, it's kind of like anything. You know, you can't, you can't just generalize a whole group of people. You know, you can't say like the Tories, you know, or like Fulham fans or like evangelicals, you know. These are complex, sophisticated, maybe not Fulham fans, but the others are complex, <laughs> sophisticated groups with differing opinions and nuanced ideas. And the Pharisees were a bit like that. But they did have some things in common. And one thing they had in common was that they had fought valiantly for Yahweh, for the God of Israel, for many years. For, for, hun- for over a hundred years by the time of Jesus. Uh, these people, you know, they were the kind of people over generations who have said, I'm a quitter. I'm, not, I'm a fighter, not a quitter. Sorry, that's the wrong way around. They weren't quitters. They were definitely fighters. So back in 167 BC, when Israel was taken over, um, there, there was a kind of Maccabean revolt. Maccabees led this revolt to, to get rid of the people who were running Israel and Jerusalem so that the people of God could have their nation back. And that's really where the Pharisee tradition started, fighting physically for God's kingdom. And then, when the Romans came, they fought politically to try and influence the Romans to say, look, you should allow us as the Jews to keep our national identity and our religious identity and keep our opportunities to worship. And then, when Herod came along, who was a kind of phony king of the Jews, but he was Jewish and he was the king, they realized that they weren't weren't getting very far with the politics, and so they start fighting spiritually. Having fought physically and politically, they're now fighting spiritually. And what they want is the kingdom of God to come. So the prayer we just prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done, is not originally a Christian prayer. It's a Jewish prayer that was prayed by Israel in exile because they wanted God's kingdom to come back. And so the Pharisees were like, well, we we can't get the kingdom with a physical fight. We definitely can't beat the Romans. Uh, And we can't get it politically but we can get it spiritually. And what we can do is we can live out the law in our own lives. We can say, I want the kingdom of God to come in my own heart, my own soul, and I'm going to keep the law. So when Jesus tells a story and he's talking about fighting valiantly, it's fairly clear that he, uh, you know, it's fairly obvious that he might use a Pharisee because they're the personification of that. 
And so he tells the story of this Pharisee who comes to pray, and he's like, well, look at me. Look at me, Lord. Look at, I'm, I'm bringing your kingdom into the world. Just, just in my life alone, I'm bringing your kingdom. You know, some people around here, they pray once, they fast once a week, but I fast twice a week. Some people around here, they only give a, a tenth of some of their income. I give a tenth of all of my income. I go the extra mile because I'm fighting valiantly for the kingdom of God to be established here in my life, in my family. And hopefully from here it will go out across the whole of Israel. These are the kind of people who fight valiantly for God's kingdom. But there's two people in the story. There's this tax collector. And the tax collector is definitely not a fighter. He's a quitter. A, t- a tax collector is colluding with the Romans. He's taking the money of people in Israel in taxes and paying them to Caesar in Rome. He's basically decided, if I can't beat them, I'm going to join them. can't overtone Rome, so I might as well work for it. Work for Rome and make some money. And he's in a terrible state. And he comes before God in the temple and says, look, I, he's so ashamed. Where, where the Pharisee looks up, he kind of looks down. And where the Pharisee talks eloquently about all the things he's done, the tax collector can barely get the words out. And suddenly at the end, all he can get to is, Lord, have mercy on me. So if Jesus is trying to help the disciples to fight valiantly, which model of discipleship should should they take on? Surely the Pharisee. He's a fighter, not a quitter. Not the tax collector. He's a quitter, not a fighter. And of course, Jesus, the big twist in this plot, says, no, 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 no. It's actually the tax collector who's going home justified by God and who will be exalted. The Pharisee, he's going to be humbled. And why? Why would Jesus do that? Well, obviously, partly there's an issue of honesty and humility For the Pharisee, it's like God should be kind of happy to have me. He's lucky to have me fighting for him. Where would God be without me? You might know some of those people. Where would God be if it wasn't for me? He'd be in a terrible spot. Whereas the tax collector knows his position before God. He knows how desperately he needs God's mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. So in some ways, it's Jesus looking for disciples who are honest and humble, and real about their relationship with him. In other ways, it's actually also about the audience. Because Jesus is talking to a bunch of disciples, right? Think about who the disciples were. They weren't Pharisees. Some of them had been tax collectors. And a lot of them weren't fighters. They were kind of quitters. And when things are going to get difficult, they're going to run away. And so Jesus is addressing a group of people who almost kind of relate more to the tax collector than they do the Pharisee. And that might be the same for us, because we're the disciples now that Jesus is telling his story to, and maybe we don't feel like kind of super Christians. We don't feel like we're the kind of the equivalent of what would have happened if Billy Graham and Mother Teresa had got married and had kids, you know? We're not kind of super Christians. We're not in danger of becoming Saint Russ or Saint Tim or Saint Laura or Saint Joe or Saint Matt. We, we actually struggle. We find it difficult sometimes to follow Jesus. We don't find it easy to fight valiantly. And in fact, sometimes when there is a fight, we'd rather run away. We're exactly who Jesus is talking to. 
And in these three stories, and this is what we're going to cover really quickly, Jesus gives us, as his disciples and the disciples back then, three practices that we can incorporate into our lives and that they can incorporate into their lives that would help them to fight valiantly. The first practice is in this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it's the practice of confession. Now, some of us are thinking, oh, it's a strange, it's not a Catholic church. Catholic church are used to having confession, and some of you might have been into a Catholic church or even sat in a confessional booth and, and, and asked, you know, had, uh, had a priest hear your confession. But actually, confession isn't a Catholic thing, it's a Christian thing, it's actually a biblical thing. James says in his epistle that we should confess our sins to one another. And this tax collector is willing to say, I need to start by confessing that I am a sinner. John 1.19, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. The practice of confessing our sins and actually particularly confessing to someone else. I am not saying for a minute if you don't confess to someone else that God doesn't forgive you, but there is something very beautiful about confessing our sins to a brother or a sister in Christ. It helps us to kind of name those deep, dark secrets that we don't want anyone else to know, that we feel shame about. It unlocks us from that shame because we've shared with someone else. It gives us that assurance that someone else says, you are forgiven. Jesus has done enough to deal with you and to to purify you from any unrighteousness. And it also helps us in terms of support and accountability because there's someone who can ask us questions and how are we doing trying to deal with that temptation, that habit, that problem. Now, John Wesley, uh, the great Methodist preacher who was actually, we kicked out of the Anglican church, it was probably for this to be honest, one of the things he did in cell groups, his version of life groups every week, was he asked people to share what was the greatest sin they've committed over the last seven days and how the Holy Spirit had given them grace to triumph. Try that at life group, let's see what happens next week. But this practice of practicing, of confessing our sins one with another and experiencing the grace of God together is absolutely beautiful. This parable gives us one of the most ancient prayers in the Christian church. It's a prayer prayed by monks and nuns and particularly the Eastern Orthodox Christians uh, uh, every day. It goes simply like this. Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, forgive me. Sorry, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the monks and nuns who have, have made sacrifices and taken a journey into holiness that few of us can imagine, they still recognize every day that their day starts by saying, I need your grace again. I need your mercy to follow me again today, Jesus. Because I'm a sinner and I want to fight valiantly for you as a disciple. So the first practice is practicing confession if we want to fight valiantly. And I'm less concerned with necessarily you coming forward and saying, oh, I've got this sin tonight that I want to confess. That's not the point of this conversation. The point of this conversation is to challenge you. What opportunities do you create for yourself to share with others when things haven't gone right and to get their help in getting it better in the future? The second practice comes from the first story that you read, the story of the persistent widow. And the persistent widow is, a, is in a terrible situation. She's very disadvantaged. I, I should start, actually, by a little bit of a confession for myself here, actually. Because we're going to talk about the persistent widow who is asking the judge for what she wants. 
And, and what Jesus wants to teach his disciples here is that the second practice is about persistent prayer, praying persistently. I've told the story about Norman and his trousers falling down many, many times. He's long gone, he's never heard me, well, he might have because he's long gone to heaven. He might be listening every time, he might be totally fed up with that story by now. But anyway, and it's an easy punchline. But in truth, Norman was amazing because he's persistent. Every week he was there with his flag. Every week in the week he would go and sell the Salvation Army newspaper and do evangelism in the street. Every Sunday he was at church. He was persistent in sharing the gospel of Jesus in any way he could. And what we see in the widow is this, this example of persistence. She's a widow, so she's got no man to stand up for her. So she's not got a husband. She doesn't seem to have a son. There's not another husband. And, and the other problem is she's a woman, and a woman's word meant nothing. She didn't really have access to a court of law. So it's quite something. She's fiercely bugging this judge to get what she wants. And the point of this parable where Jesus is concerned is, is this is not a picture of God. It's not saying that God is a grumpy judge. What it's saying is God wants us to be persistent in our prayers. I spoke at an event on Friday night, which I hadn't been to uh, since 2015. Uh, it happens in the Excel, and it's run by the Redeemed Christian Church of God, one of the, well, the largest black denomination or black majority church denomination in the United Kingdom. And it's a prayer meeting. And uh, in 2015, the prayer meeting started on a Friday evening. They used to do this kind of twice a year at 6 p.m. at the Excel. Yeah bit in the Docklands, in the arena, and it went to 5 a.m. on Saturday morning, and 40,000 people would go to it. Now, it would be interesting if we said, Friday night, we're going to have a prayer meeting, 6 p.m., it's going to go through to 5 a.m., but let's be interested to see how many of the St. D's crowd turn up. I suspect we'll get less than 40,000. And actually, they're finding their way back from COVID. And so, to be honest, they were only going to 2 a.m. this time, and there were only 10,000 of them, so things are slipping. No, in all seriousness... They have this lesson to teach us about persistence in prayer. And so my question for you is, what, what are you persisting in right now? What are you praying for? There's one really lovely line from a black church pastor who is talking about persistent in prayer. And he says this. He says, um, oh, and now, I've, now I've lost the line. Let me find it. He says, oh, gosh, here we go. Here we go. Until you have stood for years knocking at a locked door, your knuckles bleeding, you do not really know what prayer is. And it's lovely when we get quick answers to prayer or God does a miracle. But what God, Jesus wants to teach his disciples is about persistence. Some of these things you're going to pray for are going to take ages. Because it's going to take me ages to do this on my own and I need your help and that's why you're praying. But together it's still going to take ages. And that persistence in prayer is absolutely vital if we want to see God work in our world, but also if we want to change as disciples. There's something about that persistence that does as much for us as it does for God, as it does for the world. So first, practice, practice confession. Second, be persistent in prayer. And the third practice, well, it comes in the last story, and it comes with the children. These babies that people are bringing to Jesus and some people don't like this and they tell them to send away and he says truly I tell you anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Now I need to be slightly careful about this because this is a, often a story which is really misinterpreted. Often in church we say well what this really means is we should have a family service or we should have a really good Sunday school or God really loves children. I want to be really clear 
We should have family services. We should do great children's work, Hannah. And we should really love the kids. I'm, I'm all for all of that. But it's probably not what's going on in this story. It's not what Jesus is trying to convey. You see, children were even more disadvantaged than the widow. Children had no rights. You know, in the old translation, Jesus says, suffer the children, come unto me. Because children had no rights, they were open to a tremendous exploitation and tremendous suffering. And what Jesus is trying to help his disciples to understand is that actually, if you're going to follow after me, you need to give up your rights. You need to give up your sense of entitlement. You need to realize that there is a sacrifice that has to be paid if you're going to follow me. The third practice is about sacrifice. It's this willingness to say, actually, Jesus, I'm going to put you first. And I'm going to make decisions, not just once or twice, but daily, that put you first in my life. I wonder what kind of sacrifices God's calling us to at the moment. It might be a big one. It might be to leave our job and do something very different. It might be actually, you know, we can live on considerably less than we're living at the moment and share our resources with others at a real time of need. It might be actually, I'm going to give up some time because actually I know that other people need my support and help more. It's going to be difficult caring for that relative or visiting that person or taking part in that church program, but I'm going to make that sacrifice. Because becoming a disciple who valiantly fights for the kingdom of God requires confession and it requires persistent prayer and it requires our sacrifice. These lessons clearly work for the disciples then because these quitters become fighters. Virtually all of them will die for their faith. And I believe these practices will work for us now and it will turn us from that tax collector who kind of doesn't really know how to greet God in the first place because he feels so small about himself into the kind of disciples who can fight valiantly for Jesus in our world. Last Norman story. Norman worked in a pub. Some of you know the Salvation Army not only doesn't do sacraments but it doesn't do alcohol. But it does spend time in pubs. And traditionally the Salvation Army would do evangelism in pubs on Friday night. My parents used to do it when I was very small. And Norman came to faith because my granddad went into the pub where he worked behind the bar and uh, shared Jesus with him. And for Norman, that was life-changing in the best possible way, but it also meant he had to basically give up his own employment rights. He couldn't work there anymore. He had to have a whole new life. He had to live in a whole new way. But the way he lived was as someone who knew that God had saved him in the most miraculous way and someone who persistently prayed and shared Jesus with others and someone who continued to sacrifice for Jesus for the rest of his life. Shall we pray? Father, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters. I want to pray for all of us. Teach us what it means to be disciples. Teach us what it means to fight valiantly. Teach us what it means to be able to confess our sins to one another 
and to practice that continually. Teach us what it means to take issues that need to change in our lives and our world and to pray persistently until you've answered our prayer and things have happened. And teach us where you want us to make sacrifices, be they the big sacrifice of the lifetime or a daily sacrifice, which helps us to follow you more nearly. Jesus, we thank you for all you've done for us. We thank you for your love and mercy. And we ask that you would help us to fight valiantly. Amen.